Well, through all these songs, we've uh, already preached quite a sermon uh, on the doctrine of creation. Um, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean you get away without hearing a second one. So I am going to preach. So they're thinking, oh, hey, good, we're getting out early today. Uh, sorry about that, but uh, that's a no-go. Uh, so turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians <clears throat> in chapter 2. Uh, we're looking in seven weeks through the book of Ephesians, and it's quite a task, I admit, I know. Um, but we're going to jump right in. Hopefully, my goal is to give you a, a, a good, bare-bones um, look at Ephesians so that when you go through and study, your understanding just deepens. And I think sometimes when we look at the whole breadth in a short period of time, it all begins to make sense, all begins to fall into its, its parts, and it makes sense. And I want that to be our experience. So <clears throat> I hope you'll join us for every, every week of this study. Um, so if you're in chapter 2, I'm just going to read the first part. And um, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to. If you're not, that's perfectly fine. But starting in chapter 2, verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. Then you see that transition. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we read these passages, and Lord, we admit our, our understanding of something so deep, so wonderful, so magnificent, so broad. Uh, we struggle. We do. But God, I pray the Holy Spirit would give us a deeper understanding of what we have in Jesus and what you did to bring us to yourself through the work of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right, just going to give you a flyby view again of what we're learning. And remember, the book of Ephesians, the main theme is God is redeeming or reclaiming his corrupted creation through Christ. Remember, sin came, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The world fell into sin. It became corrupt. And people began to seek their own desires, which... Honestly, you can't love God and others when you're seeking yourself, and uh, that caused conflict in the human race. Conflict with God, conflict with each other, it just got ugly real fast. But God is reclaiming this corrupted creation. He's setting us free from the power of sin, and he's bringing us back into harmony. Yes, it's in fits and starts, and it struggles, and we, we sometimes go backwards, take two steps forward and one step back, and sometimes one step forward, two steps back, but God is by his grace, helping us become like Jesus. That's how we do it. So he is reclaiming this corrupt creation through Christ, okay? Beginning with the church, that's God's people, so that we might rejoice in him forever. Because one day he's going to claim all of it back to himself. He's going to give us a new heavens and a new earth and all that corruption which brings us into fighting and hating one another. That's going to be ended in Christ Jesus, and I'm so thankful. But specifically, in chapter 2, the part we're going to look at is God has given us life and community in Christ. By community, I mean God's people, okay? So we're going to look at that. Uh, so the first three chapters is our new identity in Christ. Possession, position, how we stand before Christ, we're exalted with him, it says. That's awesome. And then chapter 3 is there's a prayer that Paul gives for the church, and we can pray this as well. And then chapters 4 through 6, that's where the rubber meets the road. He goes, hey, you have a new identity in Christ. How are you going to live now? In chapters 4 through 6, he tells us things like, in Christ, he gives us unity. In Christ, he gives us purity. He gives us harmony. He gives us victory. And so we're going to look at that as we go on. Let's get right to 
our understanding. So if we were to break this chapter up, there's something that will help your understanding. Paul follows this, this uh, process in explaining, and this is what it is. He says, first of all, I'm going to show you what you were before you met Jesus. Then I'm going to show you what God did through Jesus Christ for you. And then I'm going to show you what is happening now. What is the result of what Christ did for you? And if we break it up into roughly two parts, though I broke it up into three just because I thought it would help your understanding, um, help all of us to understand better. The first 10 verses, he follows that process. What you were, what you are, what you will be. Okay, And then in starting in verse 11 all the way through the end of verse 22, he does that same thing. This is what you were, this is what God did, and this is what you are as a result. And so we'll see that theme and we're going to dive right in to the first few verses. I got bad news for you. You guys are zombies. Or at least you were zombies. You're thinking, wait, I don't remember hearing anything about the zombie apocalypse. It, by the way, aren't, we're weirdly fascinated by zombies. Zombie, you know, the first zombie movie came up in 1932. And there has been regular series of, you know, zombies in, in, the, in comic books, in movies, and, and all kinds of things, right? And we see it. People love zombies for some reason. Well, here's the good news, is you're not zombie in the way that, like the walking dead. What you are, though, the Bible says, look at the passage right here. He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So you were dead spiritually, but you were still physically alive. There was some part of you that had died, and it says in this passage, how in trespasses in sins. So we're spiritually dead, but we're alive to sin. We have no spiritual capacity being spiritually dead, no spiritual capacity to understand or accept spiritual truth. We only have the power to reject it. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 13 and 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. That Part of us that can relate to God is dead. And so when we hear the things of God, we just think, that just sounds like a bunch of foolishness to me. It doesn't, we can't comprehend it. Why? Because the Spirit of God has to make it plain to us. The Spirit of God has to work in us to show us. It says, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. And how do we get this way? Well, it says right here, sin. Sin. Romans chapter, or Colossians chapter 1 says that the problem is even worse than we can imagine. He says we were alienated and enemies of God in our mind because of our wicked works. Not only are we spiritually dead, but the Bible says we're hostile to God. We don't want his control over our lives. And it continues Romans chapter 8, the carnal mind is an enemy of God. It won't be subject to the law of God, neither can it be. It just won't let God have any control over our lives. It says, so then that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we start off in a bad way. And then it just, I hate to say it, it the picture is just going to get worse and worse. Because it then shows three forces that are working against us to bring us under the control of sin. But first of all, let's think about what we mean when we say sin. I mean, some people say it's a sin to harm the environment. Some people say, well, sin is only when you do something that makes you feel bad. But what does the Bible say sin is? That's what's important. Not what we think it is, but what does God say? Because he says trespasses and sins, and he says two things here. And by the way, we're guilty of both of them. Okay? Uh, a sin means to miss the mark. And I hope I don't embarrass you, Ryan, but Ryan is an archer. And um, we've been talking a lot about archery. And when I was a kid, I used to have a, a, a red bear bow. It was my first bow, a recurve bow. And my dad got me that, and he got me some arrows, and I would go out. We had this target, you know, and I'd shoot, and I'd miss a lot, especially at the beginning, right? You got to shoot a lot to start getting any good. And I would miss the mark over and over, and hopefully I wanted to try to hit the mark at some point. I did get a little better, uh, not much, but a little. And you know, that's what the word sin actually means. It means to miss the mark. But what mark are we talking about? Well, the mark is God. All that God is, it's his nature. It's, it's his perfect being. And sin is when God says, 
this is what I am, this is what I love, this is what I want you to be because of who I am. And sin is when we shoot and we don't hit that. Uh, another verse, Romans 3, says um, that we fall short of the glory of God. So this is God's perfection, and we don't measure up. We don't hit the mark. We miss time and time again. I don't know about you, but there's been many times I did not live the way God wanted me to live. The way that reflected his perfect character. I did what I wanted, and it certainly wasn't anything like God. You know, I act like a jerk sometimes. God's not a jerk. <laughs> but then he used another word called trespass. And we do get this. We have laws against trespassing, don't we? That's when we say, hey, this property belongs to somebody, and if you step foot on it, you are trespassing. You're going over a boundary. What does trespass mean? It means that God gives us a truth, a law, a command, and we trespass, we violate that. Uh, recently, we were in Colorado skiing, and all over the place on the mountains, it says, out of bounds. And there's clear markers. Don't go outside the boundaries. Now, some people think, oh, that's just because you know, they want people to stay on the well-worn paths. It's not. There's a very serious problem if you step out of bounds. It's called an avalanche. Ever seen one? I've never seen one up close. I hope I never do. But you know, a couple days before we got there, we heard a tragic story of a, a, a father and his son who said, you know what? We want to go on some other trails that are not marked. We want to go out of bounds. And there's clear signs. Don't go past these barriers. And they did. There was an avalanche. They were covered in snow, and they lost their lives. That is so tragic. But let me tell you something. It's no less tragic when God says, listen, I'm going to give you some things that will guide your life that are good for you. Yes, it's for my glory, but it's good for you. And we say, God, I don't care where you set the lines at. I'm going to do what I want. And we trespass. We go over those lines. And let me tell you, it ends no less horribly when we cross God's lines. Now listen, God doesn't give you lines because he hates joy. No, he's the giver of joy. You know why he tells us there are things that are good for us and things that are bad for us? Because he loves us. He wants to expand our joy. And he knows, hey, the things on the other side of that line, that's not green grass on the other side of the fence. That is nothing but death and destruction. I want to save you from having to experience that kind of pain. And when we keep on crossing, all we do, you know, it really is, and, and, and this is a grotesque picture mentally, I understand that. But sin is no less grotesque, and it's this, it's almost like a cannibal who's eating his own flesh. Like, like one that would cut off his arm and eat it. Do you know what, that's what sin does to us? We're trying to feed on something that is literally destroying us at the same time. And God says, I don't want that for you. I have so much better plans for you than that. And yet, the Bible says that's how we were. We were dead. We were walking according to the course of this world. And he gives us three things. Walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air. And it's the word according. It means literally this. It's, it, it, in the original language, it has to deal in accordance with. Or you're going down the same path as they're going down. And then he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, in verse 3, among whom we also conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. So he gives us our three enemies. And these are the three enemies we know. He gives, he gives them in 1 John as well. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? The course of this world literally means the spirit of this age. Uh, the world that's in rebellion to God, we follow the same path they're following. When they, it, it means that we understand that there is a world around us that does not want to follow God. And they're in rebellion to him, and we start thinking like they think, we start acting like they act, and we start doing and having the same values. That's really the heart of it, is having the same values as a world in rebellion against God. And before we met Christ, that's all we knew. That's what came naturally. We just followed. But then it goes on and talks about the prince and power of the air. Who is that? It's Satan. Now, Satan isn't greater than God. God created Satan, started as Lucifer, an angel that praised God, rebelled against God, was cast out of heaven, is destined to be cast into hell for all eternity. And because he hates God, he is always working in opposition to God. He is always fighting against God's purposes. And he wants to bring the world into the same destruction that is his future. 
God is offering life. Satan is offering death. And it says that we just follow the course of Satan according to the prince and power of the air, which, by the way, is the force behind what we see in the world in rebellion against God. He's the driving force. You want to wonder why there's so much hatred and racism and people abusing power and so much anger and hatred, horrible things that we see in our world. Folks, this is driven by the wicked one who hates God. God offers life and goodness and harmony, and Satan says, I hate it because I hate God because I want to be God. And so he fights with everything that he is to fight against God's purposes. And so we become enslaved to sin because the world's going that way, because Satan is pushing us that way. And then it says in verse 3, the third thing, and this is probably the scariest of all. You think, scarier than Satan? What can be scarier than that? You know, Satan is external to us, but the Bible describes something that is part of us, our flesh. Something I can't escape. Something that's not outside of me, it's worse, it's inside of me. And that's that fallen part of me that still exists living in a fallen world. There's still a part of me, although we put our faith in God and we have a new nature in Christ Jesus, we still carry around this body who still wants things. But here it's talking about people who don't even have the Spirit of God. They are completely given over to this life. And look at what it says. We conducted ourselves, or we lived our life according to the lust, that's the, the cravings and desires. It actually means an intense desire for something. Don't you feel that sometimes? You can feel your flesh wanting something. Someone makes you mad, they cut you off, and what you really want to do is yell and scream or say things that are not very kind. I'm thinking, why do I even feel that way? Because we still carry about in this body this flesh. And it says this intense cravings. Then it says the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now notice, it, it has to do with your thinking. Listen, the, the, the things that we really have to worry about, sometimes when we talk about in church, we talk about things that are worldly or wicked or whatever. Listen, we try to identify things. That thing is. But let me tell you, you know what the worst the most scariest thing is, and that's the ideas, the thoughts that are not God's thoughts, and they really, they're the reason why we drift into sin, is because we think wrong. He says, and the word it says here, the desires is the word for will. Not only do we desire them, but it says it's within our very will to want and to then choose and to commit ourselves to these sinful things, to live life our way instead of God's way. Folks, this is painting one of the most bleak pictures of the world without God. This is showing what Genesis 3 and the fall of man really leads to. And folks, don't you see it in your world? I'm tired of turning on my, the news and seeing horrible things that are happening across the world. I long, I hope you do, long for the day when Christ will make things right again and mankind will not try to kill each other. They won't make greed and things and possessions and materialism the chief pursuit of their life. So they're willing to hurt other people to make another dollar. I'm looking forward to the day when that kind of world has been changed into something beautiful again. But we see these three forces at work, and that's what we were. But then you see verse 4, it makes that beautiful transition. But God, and that is the theme of the Christian thing I was without hope in this world, and then God, he did something for me. And he says, who is rich in mercy, and we see all these things, rich in mercy, greatness of his love. You know, uh, there's a very simple song. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even <laughs> Me. Folks, that's, the, that's the, the heart of the sinner. He loves even me. Now, of course he loves me. I'm awesome. But he loves even me. Even a person who's rebelled against him. Who sh at times I've shaken my fist and said, God, I'm going to do what I want. Jesus loves even me. And folks, we, I hope we never get over that. I hope we never get over 
what Jesus did. He gave us his great love and his mercy. But then that problem of being spiritually dead, listen how he attacks it. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is not only telling us what God did now, but it's also giving us a picture of a future day. And can I say it this way? God saved you so that both now and forever, God might show you how much he really loves you. you know, one of the things when I got married, it's like I look forward to, to letting my wife know in a, as many ways as possible how much I loved her. And we do little things for them, you know, and sometimes as we've been married a long time, we stop doing those things and we have to, man, you know, we constantly want to show love. And it's, God says, hey, listen, I want all eternity to be me showering you with all my love and goodness. I'm going to show you how good I can really be, not only in this life, but for all eternity. Can I say it this way? You ain't seen nothing yet. God is good, yes, but you ain't seen nothing yet. And folks, it just gets better and better through all eternity. But he says he gives us spiritual life. We were dead and he gives us life. You know, one of the best pictures is John 15. I encourage you to, to maybe read it this week and look at that passage. It says that I am the vine and you are the branches. You can't bear fruit by yourself, but as you abide in me, then you'll bear much fruit. The idea is this, like a tree and branches. You cut off the branch, it dies. But as the branch is connected to the trunk of the tree and the sap goes from the roots up through the trunk and into the branches, then it begins to bear fruit. Then the apples appear, appear uh, the pears appear. That's hard to say, by the way. Try to say that three times real fast. Whatever, whatever kind of tree, it just produces. And the idea is this. The life is in the trunk, and we get the life from it. Listen, it's not that God just gave you something like a substance, put it in you, and says, now you have life, and you have this thing. When we talk about eternal life, he takes us and he puts our lives in bonded forever in Jesus so that the life of Christ is continually flowing in me. I tell you, that revolutionized my spiritual life because I began to stop thinking, I just, oh God, help me not to do bad things and help me to do good things. And it was just me asking, Lord, help me to be a better person. And then I began to really study John 15. It says, wait a minute, what you're saying is that because I'm in Christ, and you say that so many times in Ephesians, because I'm in him, his life is continually flowing into my life so that as I experience that life, I can then choose the best things. And I started praying this, Lord, I'm not asking you to change a, a person, me over here. I'm saying, Lord, because I'm in Christ, let the life of Christ flow into me and let my life change because of him. And I tell you what, it revolutionized my spiritual life. Because now my prayer was continually, God, I'm in Christ. When I would do well, I think, well, I'm pretty good. Before that, I would, well, I'm doing pretty good, so I must be a good person. When I failed, I'm just a loser. But now it's like, God, what I am is connected to Christ. That is my continual hope. If I'm not seeing the fruit, then I'm just going to keep on focusing on my on my connection to Christ and praying, Christ, flow your life into me. And by faith, active faith in Christ, I begin to see more things happen in my life that were like Jesus. He gave us this spiritual life, gave us a new future, and then he even gave us faith. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Um, I don't want to get technical, but if you look... It's a little bit hazy in the English translation, but if you look in the Greek, the original language in which it's written, it gets a little clear. It's still a little hazy, I'm going to be honest. But it appears as though the gift that God gave was, in fact, faith. That is the, the noun that agrees with that verb. That's the closest one of the same. In Greek, there's feminine and singular. And it's the one that agrees with it, and it's the nearest one. So according to the, the, the laws that we use in interpreting, that would mean that the gift that God gave was, in fact, faith. In other words, God loved us so much, he wanted us so much to have these spiritual gifts that he has destined for his people in Christ, that he says he reaches into the human heart that's darkened by sin and gives us the power to believe in Jesus Christ, awakens our soul that's darkened, the, the soul that's in rebellion and refusing God. He awakens it to understand the beauty of what Jesus did so that we can respond. Dead people respond to the gospel. 
And what happens? It just gets better and better. Then we get grace. God's favor. Because we're willing just to have faith that he's given us and say, God, you, I see who Jesus is. I believe I, I trust in him alone for my salvation. I don't deserve it, but he earned it. And because he did, Lord, I believe. And then he gives us grace, which means his favor. And we talked about that last week, so I won't belabor that point. And so what are we now? Verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, remember we talked about creation. Earlier he said that God created it and it was good, right? This is the renewal of the creation starting with his people. He recreates us in Christ. The new creation that's coming, he's saying, I'm going to start by renewing you. I'm going to transform your life. I'm going to give you a new nature. I'm going to give you the power to follow me. You may not do it perfectly, but you have the power to do it. And increasing measure, you'll continue to reach out for my grace, and I'll continue to transform your life so you begin to live and think like Jesus Christ. And ultimately, what's good for good works? The question is, is what is good? I mean, if we were just to, to take it from a human perspective, we might say different things are good. But this is what we know good is. God made creation good, right? So good is whatever is like God. Whatever reflects his goodness, his nature, you know, that which we lost in the fall, he's restoring. So we say, well, what is good? Good could be doing good to your neighbor. You see, he needs help carrying a couch, and good could be going out and helping carry a couch into his house. It could be helping someone who has a flat tire. But it could also be speaking kindly to someone who's treated you badly. It could also look like forgiving someone who's hurt you very deeply. It looks like a lot of things, but it looks like God, that's what I know, because he made the world good, and he's remaking us into his image, which he'll finish one day when Jesus returns. But that's good. And so we're created for these good works. Now let's jump into the last half of the passage. He says in verse 11, Therefore, remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Wow. <laughs> He's saying, you guys were in a very bad way. <laughs> But now, again, what you were, what you are. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood. And he himself is our peace, who made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is, the law of the commandments contained in the ordinance. So to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both in God through one body through the cross. Therefore, thereby putting to death the enmity that came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access into one spirit to the Father. Okay, you remember what I talked about that when the fall happened, that which was in harmony, creation, man with God and man with man, how that all fell apart. This is a picture of it. And it's seen most clearly in the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Now this is something we don't understand completely because we don't live in that day. In other words, we, we have struggle comprehending. As we look at Scripture, we can understand it clearly, but it's not something we're really dealing with in everyday life. But you have to understand that God decided to relate to people according to what's called a covenant. That's where he made, and there's different kinds, and I can't go into all what covenants mean, but it's a promise that God makes to do something for mankind. Sometimes he says it can be conditional, like I will do this, but you have to do this. And sometimes it's unilateral. He just says, I'm going to do this for you, and I don't care what you do. I'm going to do this for you. And God chose to relate to his people by making them a promise of relationship, and that's the key. Covenants are relationships built on promises of God. And he chose to relate to himself by reaching out to the nation of Israel and saying, starting with um, a man called Abraham, says, I'm going to make you a people. And then he made a promise to Abraham. And then he made that same promise to Isaac, his son, and Jacob. And on and on, he, said, he says, I will make you a nation. I'll do all these things. Basically, I'm going to bless you because we have a relationship. Now, Israel had that, but the Gentiles didn't. Jews had one God, 
God the Father. Now, they didn't worship him well, but they did have one God, and they did have some covenants, and God did relate to them. The Gentiles had nothing. They had a pantheon of gods. They had lots of, there was tons and tons of Greek gods and tons and tons of Roman gods, and they just, now here's the amazing thing. You say, well, what is this whole thing about circumcision? Circumcision became the sign of the covenant. It's, it's what Jews did in order to say, I'm part of the covenant, the promise that God made. I'm in a relationship with him. Now you say, okay, stop, hold on. This seems kind of like a weird way to say you're my people, okay? There are reasons for it that I'm not going to get into this morning, okay? But suffice it to say that God relates to his people and circumcision was a sign. And the Jews had that, but the Gentiles didn't. So what happened is the Jews, because of sin, began to hate the Gentiles, and the Gentiles hated the Jews. And God says, you know what? I'm going to rock your world. What I'm going to do is this. I'm going to take you who hate him and him who hates you, and I'm going to take both of these people, and I'm going to make them one, and they're going to love each other. Can you imagine what that was like? Love them? No way. And listen, the laws and the ordinances separated them, meaning this. The Jews lived by a code that God gave them that made them completely different to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles hated them for it. And the Jew, they despised the Jews for it. And the Jews looked down on the Gentiles and says, well, we have all these rules that God gave us and you don't have them, so you guys are terrible and we're awesome. And there was this hatred that grows. But folks, don't we see that? Only it, it comes in different forms. We hate people because they're, they're of a different race. That's terrible. That's what sin does. You know, listen, Satan wants to divide. That's all he wants to do. He steals, he kills, he destroys, he divides. Why? Because he doesn't want to see God's goodness reflected in humanity because he hates humans. He wants to enslave them. And so he wants to say, hey, I want, I want, to, I want to get the human race hating each other because they have different skin color. I want them to abuse and harm each other because they're different genders. I want to... I want to Cause them to despise each other because you're from this country and you have these politics and you're from this country and you have those politics. And we fight and we war. Why? Because our hearts are not at peace. And this is what he says. I'm going to bring you in peace with God and I'm going to bring you in harmony. I'm going to take these two groups who hate their guts and the Christians rock the entire world with something radical. While they were hating each other, Christians walked up and said, you're my brother now. And they lived and they gave and they shared their lives together and they helped each other and they, they, they sacrificed for one another. And the whole world's going, what is going on? Is the, are these people mad? That's not how they act. And God says that's how they act when they come to the cross. He says he brought them near by the blood of the cross. The, the blood is so important. Here's the reason why. Because whenever a covenant was given, they would take an animal, cut it in half, split it. And the two people would pass through when they made the treaty. By the way, peace treaties of that day and covenants made between uh, kings and their vassal states all followed this formula. Even people who were just making land agreements would sometimes make a covenant between each other. And they would cut the animal and spread it. And basically the whole idea is this. If we break the covenant, let us be like these animals and be killed. That was the picture. And this is the thing. Jesus was killed so that we could come to God. God wanted us so bad, says, I know you would never give yourself for me, but I tell you what I'll do, I'll give my very son for you. That's how much I love you. And he gave his son, and his son was killed, his blood was spilt, so that we can now come and have a relationship with God because of what Jesus did. That is amazing. And then he says, and not just you Jews, you Gentiles, whosoever will may come. The new covenant was given so that all who would come to God through Christ would be brought together. And so he says, you're not Jew, you're not Gentile, you got one name now, and it's Christian, because it's all about the cross. You see, the cross became a bridge that gap, between the gap between the Jews and the Gentiles. He put the bridge there and says, now I'm going to bring you together, and it's because of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you this, that's why when Jesus says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples when you have love for one another, that's why it's powerful. Because it's showing that God is strong enough to overcome the racism, overcome the abuse, the me-centered, nobody else but me matters kind of life, and says it's not about me anymore. It's about something. You see, the cross levels the playing field. It makes everybody sinners, and it gives everybody the same Savior. 
I don't care who you are. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, so I'm better. No, you're not. You're a sinner. <laughs> I lived my whole life for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You're a sinner too. Just like the person you grew up in church doing all the right things. All are sinners. And they says, but here's the good news, folks. I got a Savior that saves all. Come. Doesn't matter who you are. Come to me. And, and, and that's the picture of this thing. That, that we see in, in this passage, the, the ordinance, by the way, it says uh, the, broke down the wall. Do you realize that in Herod's temple, which would have been there in Paul's day, he was thinking of this when he wrote this. We see a picture of that division. You see, you had Herod's temple, and around it was the holiest of holies. If you've read about the, the temple or about the tabernacle, there was a thing with a wall around it, and no one got to go in there except the priest once a year to offer a sacrifice. So it was saying, there's a wall, you can't come to God. God tears the wall down. He says, come. Come to me. You don't have to go through anybody but Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, faith in him, you can come to God. And then there was another thing. There was the courtyard of the Gentiles and the courtyard of the, courtyard of the Jews. And what it basically said, the Jews are like, well, if you really want to come and worship God, we'll let you. But you can't come to where we are. We're special. We get to one courtyard, and then there's a big wall, and then you guys can only go in this. And if you crossed over into the Gentile courtyard, oh, they got real mad. Matter of fact, we see a riot that happened because they thought someone had crossed the line. And it was a picture of this. Jews are like, we're better than you. We want you to make sure and know that. And the Bible says, in Jesus Christ, that wall has been obliterated. You're not Jew. You're not Gentile. You're not good and bad. You're all sinners, all needing the same Savior and so when we come to the foot of the cross, it's all level at the foot of the cross, amen? No one takes a high road, no one takes a low road, we all take the same road, and that's Jesus. We come to the foot of the cross, it's all level, it's all equal, and now we can hug each other because we're reconciled to God. And by the way, when you experience peace in your heart with God, all that anger and all that sin that drives us apart, God begins to melt away. It takes time, but then we can start to look at one another with eyes of love. Instead of eyes of like, well, they don't do it like I do it, and they don't say what I say, and they don't act the way I act, and they don't do what I do. We just come and say, brother, we got the same Savior. Put my arm around you. Let's go together. It's just this amazing thing that we see here. Okay, I got to wrap this up, okay? So we're reconciled. He mentions five ways they were apart from God. Uh, there he says, verse 12, that at one time you were without Christ. You didn't, Christ was the Savior. He was the anointed one who would keep the new covenant. He said, you didn't have a Savior. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, because you weren't part of Israel, you didn't have a covenant. So you had no way to relate to God, right? Strangers from the covenants of promise. He then doubles down. We have promises. You, you were not part of that because you're Gentiles. These are for the Jews. Having no hope and without God in the world. You had no hope of salvation because you had no covenant. You had no Savior. You had nothing and then he says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, have been brought near. And he talks about those who are near and those who are far off. He's roughly saying this, okay, yes, the Jews had the, the covenants. So they were perhaps, in one sense, they, had a, they were near in the fact that they had a way to get to God through the covenants. The Gentiles didn't have that. But he says, it doesn't matter. You who are far away and you who are near, God brings you all to him through the new covenant. And Jesus Christ gave himself to ratify or to initiate the new covenant. It's a new deal, so to speak, with God. We can be one with him through Christ Jesus. Then you hit verse 19, and then he just wraps it up with this. He says, there's three pictures I want to give you that show you this newness. He says, you're a family, you're a new man, and you're a temple. And notice how he says this. For uh, oh, and you're a new kingdom. Now, verse 19, now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Fellow citizens, we know what that means, what it means to be a citizen. We're citizens of, uh, of America. We live in Missouri. We vote there, right? He's saying this, you're part of a people now. You're part of a community, a group of people that are, it's brand new. You're not Jew. You're not Gentile. You belong to God through Christ. You're a Christian now. You belong to a new kingdom that is your focus. Uh, before, he says this, he created one new man. Uh, let's see. Oh, it'd be verse 15. Abolish the flesh, the enmity, the law, the commandments that contain the ordinance. By the way, you know how God 
uh, the, the ordinance and, and all those commands, they separate us from God because we couldn't keep them, right? But now someone did keep them. And so in God's eyes, that which separated us, us trespassing and violating and sinning, he says that's been taken care of. Who took care of it? Jesus. Jesus took the curse of the law on him when he was punished and killed. And he lived the life of perfection that we didn't live. And so that's what it's referring to. And then he says in verse 15, going back uh, chapter 2 in, uh, not verse 15, verse 19. Your fellow citizens and members of the household of God, you're part of God's family. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now he's picturing a temple. The temple was built with large blocks. And he says, if you look at the temple, you see all those blocks? That's kind of how we are. We're all blocks in his temple. And inside that temple, now you have the Holy Spirit dwelling, God's very presence. You're not separated from God. No, you are literally through the Spirit. You're at one with God. And as you gather together, we as his people now begin are like a temple. We get to offer worship and praise to God because we are all members. And he says Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Uh, one of the most important things in building a building is making sure you get the foundation right. Foundation isn't square, the house ain't going to be square. So they make sure and measure and make sure that that foundation is square. This is sort of saying like the chief cornerstone back in their building day, they would set one large stone that, be, that would square up the building. And from that, they would begin to build the other blocks to make the structure. And it had to be right. Jesus was that block. He was the foundation stone, so to speak, so that we are all built on Christ. The reason why we can worship is not because we're good in ourselves, but that we're in Christ Jesus. We're part of his temple. He's building this holy temple in the Lord. You're being built together for the dwelling place of God in his spirit. So he's saying, you're something brand new, folks. You're a new man. You're a new kingdom. You're a, a, a new house, a, a new uh, family. You're a new worship facility, so to speak. And God has brought you together to be this new thing. Now, folks, that's why it's important that the church ought to get love right. We ought to get it right. We're, we're showing the world what the new creation is going to supposed to look like. Now, listen, when I say love, I, I'm not talking about that cheap thing that the world talks about where you have to just accept everybody and, and, and not, not ever think that anything is wrong, if you choose it, it's okay. Because God says there's trespasses and there are sins, things that aren't in, innate, in accordance with his nature. And there are things that are in accordance with his nature. But what it's saying is this, is a lot of the that we recognize Satan is trying to divide us through hatred and that Christians begin to see that love is flowing out of the heart of Christ and into the heart of the believer so that I can offer grace and I can offer love to those people around me. And I can love people that even are still in rebellion against God. I don't have to accept what they say as being true. God is true. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. God is true. So, but the fact is, is we can love people that are far from God the way God loves people that are far from him, and he is drawing them to himself. We can do that. But most of all, Folks, the church ought to get love for each other right because we're part of a new community in Christ. Our love for each other ought to be the most intense, the most loyal, the most committed of any love. And by the way, it means that I can love my kids better and I can love my wife better and I can love other people better because of that love. But folks, in the church, we ought to get it right. That means sometimes, you know what, we're going we're gonna to hack each other off. We're going to make each other mad. We're going to say and do things that, that, that create negative, uh, bad feelings. We're going to say things that are jerky and not that we mean to, not that we should. But here's the thing is, when you love each other like that, and we're committed to each other like that the way Christ is committed to us, we give each other grace when we fail, and we love each other no matter what. And we say, we're family. We can work it out. You know what? I'm just tired of church people getting mad in a huff, said, well, I'm leaving, and I'm never talking to that person again, and I'm never going to forgive that person. That is not the language of Christ. That's the language of this world and Satan. We should be saying, we're one. No matter what it takes, we're going to work it out.
Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for showing us this passage. God, it's challenging to our hearts because the truth is we don't always love the way we should. And we're new creations in Christ, and we're a new community in Christ, and we're in Christ. And if anybody should get it right, it ought to be us. We should be the most loving, the most caring people in the world. God, help us to be that. We're not always that, but help us to be that. But God, we also see that we're new creations. We have a new identity. So that old life where we just gave in to the desires of our flesh, that ain't, that ain't us anymore. You transformed us. You stepped in. And you saved us by your grace. And you made us, uh, you exalted us in Christ Jesus. He says, you, you seated us in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. Literally, the glory that you give the Son, you now allow us to share in. Jesus himself said in John 17, all yours are mine, and all mine are yours, and I am glorified in them. God, we realize that our glory is not in us. Our glory is that we are in Christ Jesus. And that, that, that elevates all of us. So that when I look at my brother, no matter how he's failed, uh, my sister, no matter how they act sometimes, I say, Christ exalted you for his glory, and you're lifted up with Christ, and you are exalted in his, his uh, you share in his glory. And because you share in his glory and the renewed image that God is creating, you are of great value. Now that, Lord, that's double value because you say we carry the image of you. You made us in your image. So that automatically gives nobility and worth to every human being. Every human matters. Everyone. But then on top of this, you say you give us this other exalted place in Christ Jesus. So that believers ought to... God, is it so hard for us to put others above ourselves when we realize you have put them in a high status in Christ Jesus? So, Lord, as we share in that glory, God, I pray that we'll also share it in the fact that our lives are transformed. They're filled with love. They're filled with grace. And that we begin to do good works. Why? Because you made us new. And then you brought people that are radically different in a lot of ways. You brought them all into one body so that we can love each other the way Christ loves us. And we, as a unified body, can go forward and show the world how amazing Jesus is. Tall order. That, Lord, we're in Christ Jesus, and that is our power to become what you've destined us to be. So work your grace in us. God, help us to love each other, that we help each other. We care about how we're doing spiritually. We care about each of us, the pains that we suffer, the failures that we have, the, the joys and the successes and the celebrations. We celebrate those with each other because we just care. Help us to be those people, we pray. And Lord, my prayer is this, that if anybody doesn't know Christ the way that you have showed us this morning, that they would say, you said, for by grace are you saved through faith in Christ Jesus. Not of yourselves, that's not my good works, but it's Christ. That if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ in that way, they don't have a relationship with you through faith in Christ and saying, I can't be good enough, Christ was good enough, my faith is in him and I will follow Jesus Christ to my dying day because it's all about him. I want to follow Jesus. God, if there's, no one, if there's someone who hasn't done that, that right now this morning, the Holy Spirit would open up their understanding. They would believe the gospel. They would be set free from the power of sin. Oh, not the influence of sin, but the power of sin is broken so that they can begin to start living like Jesus Christ. I pray they would experience it this morning by your grace. God, save them. Give them the understanding and the power to believe. Not only for their good, but for your glory. And Lord, we glory in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me say this. If you in your heart said, I believe. I believe. You said, you told me what Jesus did. I believe that. If you did that, would you come and tell me after the service? Would you do that? And just say, Pastor, I believed. You know what? I love the number one. I might get in the shouting fit. I'll try not to embarrass you, but I get pretty excited about these things, as you can tell. It's pretty awesome. I'll keep it calm. I'll get excited, though, and, and you know what? We can get things in your hands to help you in your walk with Jesus. If you're just starting out, man, it's awesome, but you need help. 
and we're here to help you. Yeah, come on up, brother. We're going to sing a song. Sitting there thinking about this song and wrestling back and forth whether I should just pop up and say, let's sing this song because uh, it was it was on my heart. And I went back and forth and I said, well, I'll try it. So, Oh How He Loves You and Me is a song and I'll do my best to sing it with you. So we'll just sing it a cappella. Ready? Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. That second verse says, Jesus to Calvary did go. Let's sing that, that one as well. Jesus to Calvary did go. His love for sinners to show what he did there brought hope from despair. Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. My heart needed to sing it whether yours did or not, so thanks for singing with me. Church, we're dismissed. Have a wonderful day.